if this is your first time gathering with us, we launched a sermon series in, in the book of Romans last week. And we just really did an introduction that walked through the first two verses, um, barely. But we talked about who Paul is, how he has been uh, anointed by God, and even, even God used his, um, his studying, his birth, that he's a Roman, that he's a Jew, that he grew up in a Greek culture, and he uses all of that particularly to bring this gospel, this good news. So we talked about the man, the mission, and the message. And the mission is he's writing to the church in Rome, and he longs that they would know and trust and depend and place all of their hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw that his identity as a servant of Christ Jesus was, was super important. That's why he leads with that in the very beginning. And, and we translate it servant, but sometimes it's translated slave. And how we don't necessarily have that first and foremost in our identity. That we don't usually introduce ourselves as, Hi, I'm Joel. I'm a slave to Jesus. Although that's what Paul does. And it's because he's been, he's been drawn to the good news of this gospel in such a powerful and mighty way, that that would be where he attaches all of his identity, all of his prestige. That's what he boasts in, is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to speed it up a little. And this is the first of four different um, sermons on the overview of Romans. Because what we want to do is we want to kind of have an idea of where Paul is going with the whole of the message. Because really... If you were in Rome at the time and you were receiving the letter, you would hear it all at once. Now, we break those things down and we preach them much more slowly and we give context and all of the things to it. But if you were in Rome, they would say, hey, we have a letter from, from Paul. Maybe you don't know who Paul is, but he's going to introduce himself in the letter. And then they would all sit and they would read the letter at one time. So we're still not going to do that yet. We're just going to do it in four different parts. But I want you to hear and I want you to see, like, what is Paul's argument? What is he trying to tell us as he writes to Rome? Because what we believe, as people who would gather and sit under the word, is that this was written, yes, for the Romans, to the church in Rome, to those who were loved by God and called according to his purpose, right? But we also believe that this was written to us today, 2,000 years later, that it has weight that what we read today is this call to faith and belief that wasn't just for them, but it's for us today. And so I pray that we would take hold of that. I pray that we would see the beauty of the gospel, that we're sinners condemned, like that all of us are, cannot depend on our own righteousness, our own works, our own ability, and we need an outside alien source of righteousness, something outside of us, and God himself has come and given us his righteousness. That by faith today we stand in, we take hold of, we believe in. And so we're going to see that today as we look at these first four chapters in Romans. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be skimming through Romans. We're going to grab verses out of these first four chapters. And we're going to see the the argument that Paul is presenting to the church. the, the, The convictions that he's presenting to the church. The logic that he's presenting to the church. And the call to belief that he's presenting. But... We can read this, and our human ears and our human eyes can see the words and begin to comprehend the words, but what we need desperately is we need the power of the Spirit, Spirit that would give us ears to to actually hear, eyes to actually see what God is saying, and a heart that would then yield itself 
to the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that we would be transformed and conformed into His image because that's what we desperately need today. We don't need how to get better. We don't need um, how to treat people better. What we need is we need God to do a miraculous work in each one of us today. Whether it's the first time He's doing it, right? The first time you're realizing that Jesus is moving and working in your heart or whether you've sat through thousands of teachings and sermons, or you've read the word a thousand times, every time we come to it, we're begging God to do what only God can do. So let's ask him today. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word. God, we recognize the privilege of being able to go to your word whenever we want. It has not always been the case that your people had your word given to them, and so Lord, we just, we're thankful May we not come lightly, but may we come with gratitude to you. God, we pray that your spirit today would do a work in us that would take a hard heart and make it a heart of flesh. That would take eyes that are blind and make them see. That would take ears that are deaf and help us to hear. God, because truly we want to know and see the power of your gospel, the power that raised your son from death to life, Lord, the power for faith. So, Lord, give us faith today. Help us to believe what you say is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we look at these first four chapters, I would, I would condense it down to saying that um, Paul is writing and he's, and he's telling the church in Rome... That listen, you are justified, you are saved by faith. And he's going to explain that to us. He's going to explain the need that we have and how God has met that need in the person and work of his son, Jesus. I love that uh, we could start with Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is, this is a summary. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This faith idea, he's, he's harping on this. He's really pressing into the idea that if we would take hold of anything that God has for us, it would be by faith, it would be by believing that what he says is true. And so today I pray that we would do that. Faith is one of the major themes of Paul's message to the Romans. This morning we're looking at the role of faith in justification. How do we become partakers of the power of God for salvation? How do we enter into that people that are taking hold of that? We do it by faith. Romans 1.4, this is, this is power. Says it, and it was declared to be the Son of God in power. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That power is the same power, dynamis is the Greek word for it, and you see that same power in both verse 4 and in verse 16. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power of the gospel that would save you and I today. It's the same power working in us. From God. And so Paul greets the Romans. And then he expresses how he longs to be with them. I think it's beautiful the, the gift that we see in Scripture of how the church loves the church. 
Like as God puts this desire in us to love Him, He also puts a desire in us to love each other. We saw that in our time in 1 John. Like those two things aren't, aren't separate from each other. They are the same love of God that would be in the heart of a believer. And Paul has the same love for the church in Rome. In verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of His Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11, for I long to see you. Verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel. There's this desire that Paul has to go to Rome and to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. He's eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then in 16 and 17, He sums up the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying all of this, and it's his preliminary opening. But in that we're going to see that it's actually the scope of the whole of Romans. Like, you have to take hold of Jesus, the Son of God, by faith. You have to believe that what God has said is true. But we haven't believed it. And that's where Paul goes next in verses 18 through the end of chapter 1. Our unrighteousness. Our unrighteousness that deserves the wrath of God. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God has given us truth. He's given us truth, and, and yet, because sometimes that truth argues with our own hearts and our own uh, human desires, we reject and suppress the truth. And so, God is saying that we have an unrighteousness that would suppress the truth, and he is calling us to righteousness. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, God spoke to Adam and Eve. And, and what is their unrighteousness? Their unrighteousness is that they didn't believe what God said. They suppressed the truth in their own hearts and they said, on my own I can live. I can do better than what God has told me. And so they disobey God's rule and God's good, righteous law for them, God's instruction on how to live, and they say, I don't need to live the way that you want me to live. I can live on my own. And what we see in Romans is more of this same thing, the suppression of the truth. As you read verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We want to think that, well, if it wasn't explained to me clearly, then I have an excuse. The reality is that God says that there's sufficient evidence for His truth in His creation. His attributes are shown. His love, His generosity, His goodness is shown to us. And yet we reject it. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He goes on and he talks about giving themselves up to dishonorable passions. He talks about homosexuality and he talks about um, men committing unnatural acts with men and women with women and just diving into their passions. And then in 29, he gives a whole list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. As we read that, there's a weight that comes with that. It can, it can feel like, man, that's true. And then we can look at society and we can look at our culture and we can say, man, that, it's like Paul was writing to us. But really the reality is that this has been the case for anyone outside of God. Anyone who has not taken hold of God's righteousness by faith and believed that what he said is true, this has always been a reality. And it's still a reality today. That those who would suppress the truth of God would actually receive in themselves the wrath of God, the penalty of their sin as they walk in that sin. Verse 26 is key. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them over to their own desire to reject Him. Their own saying, on my own, I can live. And it's almost as if he says, okay, try that. See how it works for you. Follow your own passions and your own desires instead of what I've given you as a good desire, as a good way of living. And we see, we, we know from experience, many of us, that as we pursued our own selfish ambition, our own passions, our own desires, it actually leads to brokenness and breaks relationship not only with God, but with so many others. And look at those, that list. Envy, murder, strife, all of it breaks our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Verse 32 sums it up. Though they knew Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I think particularly in our culture right now, and we'll dive into this as we slow down in a couple weeks, like how is that true? Not only do we practice them, but we, we elevate them. And we say, this is good. Culture says that you can be whoever you want to be. Nobody else can tell you how you should live your life. And we, we say that there's freedom there, and yet where actual freedom is, is under the good rule of a good king. That's what we need, and that's what God has given us. So not only do they practice those things, but they laud those things. They make much of those things. They give approval to those who practice them. So there's this, there's this unrighteousness. There's an unrighteous way that deserves the wrath of God and is actually experiencing the wrath of God in the, the consequences of sin. And then chapter 2, Paul begins to talk about God's righteous judgment. 
And how not only are we judged and culture is judged, but each one of us sit under that same judgment. Verse, two, verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You see, the reality is that when we're confronted with this, this, this sin, when we're confronted with our own unrighteousness, instead of repentance, often we begin to judge others. We begin to point to other sins in, in other people or in society. Instead of repenting and running back to God, we actually run away from Him into more and more sin. Paul saying that, listen, instead of repenting, you judge others and you heap more condemnation on yourself. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. What we find in chapter 2 is that instead of running to God, we run away from Him. Romans 2, 9 through 11, just a, a quick summary, says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being that, who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember, he's going to point out Jews and Greeks a lot. And, and we know from last week that, that, that the Jews had been uh, expelled from Rome and then come back to Rome. And so now in, within the church, you have Jews that have believed that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and you have Gentiles that are being brought in, Greeks that are being brought in, and Romans that are being brought in, people who are not of Jewish descent. But then all of the Jews were expelled, and now they're coming back. And so Paul is writing to explain to them, listen, all of you are under the banner of Christ in His righteousness, whether you are the Jew or the Greek. So each time when he explains that, think about, like, why would he explain that? Why would he make that distinction? Well, it's because people are, are divided and he's bringing this unity of being one in Christ. There, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This idea of, of all mankind being under righteous judgment. Verses 13 through 16. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's beginning to unpack what is the role of the law. Like, was the law, did the law have a purpose? If the law wasn't what was making people right, what was the purpose of the law? The law pointed to the sin that we all have and that we all sit under the righteous judgment of God. And so what we need is someone who, who, could, who was righteous in and of himself. And so Paul writes... Very clearly, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, the need that we have for a righteousness that we can't earn. 
a righteousness that we receive by grace. In 28 and 29, as he sums up this chapter, this thought, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's talking about the idea that the Jews who had the law, they weren't working out their salvation. They were believing and taking hold of the righteousness that they had received because God had promised it to them. It's not an outward thing. It's an, it's an inward circumcision of the heart. It's not an outward expression. God is the only one who can circumcise the heart. God is the only one who changes the heart. As we've seen in Ezekiel, the desire that God would take our hard hearts and give us hearts of flesh, it's always been the cry of His people. How is God going to do this? In, verse, or in chapter 3, Paul makes the argument that God's righteousness is being upheld. 3, 1 through 4. Then what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He's asking a rhetorical question. So what's the point of being a Jew? What's the good news of having the law? If all it does is condemn, he says, actually much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They've been given the testimony of God's faithfulness to His promise. So when they're called to believe, they have testimony of how God has been faithful. They look at at the story of Moses Hearing God, God promising to save, and then they have the reality that God saved. So what do they have? They have all of this evidence that God is faithful to His promises. And so when God says, believe and trust and have faith in Me, they get to jump into that and say, man, God is faithful. Why would I not believe Him? Whereas the Greeks or the, or the, the Gentiles would not have all of that evidence that they grew up with, hearing the stories of God's faithfulness. But they still obtain it the same way. They still come, and by the same faith and by the same belief, believe that God is not a liar, that God will save. So Paul is is pressing into this idea that we would take hold of salvation by faith. That we believe God's word to be true. He does that by expounding on the Psalms. As you look at verse 9 of chapter 3, and you have all of these quotations, they're all taken from the Psalms. And I just want to read it because I think that just hearing this, hearing the way that Paul writes it, is, is weighty and has power. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. 
But the venom of asps is under their asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's weighty. He's talking about all mankind. In and of ourselves, we, we don't have any, we don't do any good. No one does good. We deceive, we lie. We're full of curses and bitterness. We shed blood. There's no fear of God before our eyes. This is the bad news of the gospel, and we talk about that sometimes, but, but it's not a bad news that was created by us. It's, it's a truth. When we reject God, when we suppress the truth, when we say on our own we can live, all that we get is this, an unrighteousness, a lack of understanding. And so what are we left with? We're left with a need that we can't meet ourselves. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. None of us. By our adherence to the law, we'll be justified. All of us fall short. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. Listen, we read this earlier, and it was probably like, man, that's really sweet. But when we take it out of the context of right before that, we've been given all of these verses from Psalms that say we are, we are debtors with no, no hope in and of ourselves that then this carries even more weight, even more good news. It's not just like, oh, that's good. No, that's, that's beautiful, and I desperately need it. Because outside of faith, outside of belief in Christ, I'm not good. Outside of Jesus doing a miraculous work and a powerful work that went from death to life, I'm a deceiver. I utter things with my lips, curses, and bitterness. I shed blood. All of those things are true about me outside of the good news and the hope that I have in Jesus. And so when we read it in that context, it's not just like, oh, that's, that's cool. It's like, oh God, I need it. I can't live without your saving work in my life. When we realize that we are justified by grace that is a gift that we haven't earned, that we didn't do any of it, it produces a gratitude in us for the grace that we have received that should permeate all of our lives. Like the way that we brush our teeth should be affected by how God has saved us. Because there's a joy that, that 
is part of everything that we do. I say this recognizing this morning there was no joy in my heart in some of the things that I did. And so I run back to this thing and I say, God, Lord, will you do a miraculous work in me? Will you help me to believe that what you say is really true? So that my life would be a praise to your glorious grace? Rather than a striving and a fighting for my own my own glory. And it says that we're justified by His grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Well, it says God put forward Jesus. God has done everything required for you and I to be saved. We didn't do it ourselves. We were were debtors. We needed Jesus. It says that we were not righteous, so we need a righteousness outside of ourselves, an alien righteousness. And so God has come and He's given us His righteousness in His Son that we take hold of by faith. Believing that when Jesus died, He paid for my sin. When He rose again in power, He's given me life in His righteousness so that now I am justified before the Holy God. By the righteousness of Christ. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. How is God just? He's just because he punished sin. He punished sin that you and I have committed when Jesus took on our sin. And so he punished him with the death that you and I deserve. With the, with the expulsion that you and I deserve. The rejection that you and I deserve, Jesus bore on our behalf. And then Jesus rose again. Because only the God of the universe has the power to rise again. To make things that were dead alive. And so he rises again. And in his rising again, you and I get to see that we have a righteousness that's not our own. Jesus paid for our sin and he's given us his righteousness to walk in. So Jesus justifies us. And God is just because he punishes wickedness and unrighteousness. So when we read this in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How do we enter into that? We enter into it by believing that it's true. By faith. It's not a new concept. And I think that we we talked about it last week, but Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life is radically changed. But remember, he had devoted all of that life to an understanding of the Jewish law and the Torah he had dove deep under the teaching of uh, Gamaliel and, and like these real scholars, so he knows all of it. And then he sees Jesus, the God of the church that he had been persecuting, on the road to Damascus, and, and Jesus calls him to himself. And Paul is radically changed. And then it says he spent several years in Arabia. And I... 
I just imagine that in those years in Arabia, that's where he's really wrestling with God on, God, how can I believe this other thing that you said was true and then see you in the person of your son and that's also equally true? How are those things reconciled? And then he writes this letter that talks about all of it is through faith. And so Paul explains in chapter 4 that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the father of the chosen people of Israel, how did he, how was he declared righteous? How did he receive the promise? He received it the same way that you and I receive it today, through faith. Verse 4, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? First, Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is beautiful. Abraham, the father of faith, did he do anything that was amazing? I mean, we have the story where he goes and he takes his son to the altar... But even that was acting in the simple thing that was he believed God. Like, yeah, he he walked in obedience, but he walked in obedience only because he believed that what God said was true was true. He took hold of it by faith. Paul goes on and he explains that, listen, even the circumcision, the obedience of being set apart, all of that happened because he believed what God said. The circumcision happened after He believed the promise of God. He didn't earn God's promise. He didn't earn God's grace. He received God's grace and walked in it by belief. Verses 3-5, through For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We are grafted into God's kingdom, into his people, and it's a gift of grace. We take hold of that gift of grace by faith. Today, you and I, if we're in Christ, It's because Christ has come and done the work of changing our hearts so that we would love Him and long to serve Him and we believe that His promise is true. That's a gift of grace. We haven't earned it. None of our works are producing this thing. It is God who is doing all of it and it should stir in us great gratitude. It's the way that people have always received the promises of God by believing God. This idea of faith. Romans 4, 10 through 11. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. This idea of a righteousness being counted to us, being accredited to us outside of our works is key. 
Hey, some of you young guys and girls, why are you, why are you trying to read, read the Bible? Why are you trying to pray? What's, what's the purpose, right? Do, are we thinking that somehow we are earning God's gift? Because if we're earning God's gift, we no longer call it a gift. And I say young people, but old people, like, are we hearing this too? Why, would, why then do we go out and try to live godly lives if we've been given everything that we need and we're completely justified by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ? We do those things because we've received this grace and out of gratitude for that grace, we want to love. We want to love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to love our neighbor more than ourselves. Like, that's true. It's not, we are not earning justification. We are not becoming more justified or more right with God in those moments. No. We are as right with God today, if you are in Christ, as you will ever be. Paul's going to go on and he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about, like, what can separate us from that? If we're in Christ, nothing can separate us from that. And so today we take hold of that by faith. And then out of faith, we walk in obedience. Out of faith, Abraham walked in obedience. He took on the sign of circumcision. He followed God into a new land. He gave up his son on the altar, expecting to have to kill him, but also hoping that God would, be, would fulfill his promise. Like all of those things, all of that obedience was walking out of faith, walking out of belief. So today, we're called to do the same thing. We're called to believe. 4.16 says this, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And then at the end of Romans, he presses into the beauty of Jesus Christ. He's already done it several times. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, he talks about the beauty of the gospel, the power of the gospel to save. In Romans 3, what we read today, 21 through 26, he talks about God justifying us by grace by putting His Son forward as a propitiation for our sins. The right payment for our sins. And then at the end of, verse, in the end of chapter 4, he presses into this good news of the gospel once again. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Continuing to talk about Abraham. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you believe today that when Christ went to the cross He saved you? That's the only way that you can enter into that is by belief. It's not by your parents' belief. It's not by uh, your friends' belief. It's not by your spouse's belief. We enter into this by our own faith, a personal faith that says, I believe that what Jesus has done is true. That it's sufficient. 
that God really did give Himself up for me in the person of His Son so that I would be declared righteous, justified before a holy God. It's the only way that you and I come to faith today, come to Jesus today, is through faith. So that would be the call this morning. Believe. Believe that this is true. Believe it so much that it creates joy and gratitude in our hearts, that we would not only believe it as a one-time thing, but we would continue to press into this. No, this is true today. Like, like I have sin, I have brokenness, it's all around me, but I believe what God says is true, that He has redeemed me, that He has called me by name, that I am His and He is mine. Like all the promises of God we take hold of by faith today. And it gives us joy. It gives us joy so much so that we would share it with others. It gives us joy so much so that we would leverage some of our afternoon to have a picnic so that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus to others. And not not begrudgingly, but joyfully. Like, God, you are so good. And your kindness is so much. I can't believe that you would love a sinner like me and that you would send your son to die on the cross for me. And today I have joy. Because you've done that. And I believe it. And you've stirred that belief in my heart. God, would you stir it in others? We should be a people that pray more. I want to be a people that pray more. Let's be a people that pray more. That that beg God, God, would you help me to believe it today? And would you help me to believe it so much that I would share it with others? Because this news is so great. I I am not righteous. No one is righteous. For all have sinned. I am part of the all. I have all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But those who believe are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I pray that today we would receive this good news by faith. Amen. God, you're so kind. Though we know it, we believe that your word is true. God, we believe that not only did you do the work of salvation through your Son, but you preserve that good news, that testimony, and you speak to us today. And you bring the good news to us, Lord. And you invite us to believe, to enter in by faith in Jesus. So Lord, may we take hold of that today. May we take hold of it with joy. May it be a joy that would spread not only Um, in this moment, but it would permeate our whole lives. Our interactions with our families, our interactions with our neighbors, Lord, that that it would affect the, the simple and the complex. Lord, we thank you that you have saved those who have faith in you by the work of your son, Jesus. We pray that you would receive all of the glory and all of the honor, now and forevermore. We ask this in your name. Amen.